Welcome to The Sound of IR, a podcast that seeks to educate aspiring interventional radiologists about the clinical practice of IR. I'm Ben Rausch, a third-year medical student at Western Michigan University Homer Stryker MD School of Medicine. I'm Michelle Schneider, a fourth-year medical student from the University of Miami Miller School of Medicine and incoming IRDR resident at the University of Michigan. I'm Santa Herwell, a third-year medical student at the Tufts University School of Medicine. We realized the educational power of podcasts for medical education and worked with a great team of students, residents, and attendings to create a resource specifically for interventional radiology. We will be the hosts of this episode, and we hope that you find it both educational and enjoyable. We're very excited to introduce this next episode of The Sound of IR, in which we will discuss the advances in the role of interventional radiology in gallbladder disease with Dr. Ravi Srinivasa from the University of Michigan and Dr. Jeffrey Chick, formerly of the University of Michigan, now of Cardiovascular and Interventional Radiology Associates of Alexandria Radiology. Thank you for taking the time to come on the podcast. Thank you for having us. Yep, thanks a lot. So before we get into our topic, we'd like to know how each of you decided to become an interventional radiologist, starting with uh, you, Dr. Srinivasa. So uh, I decided to become an interventional radiologist probably in, I'd have to say, if I had to pinpoint it to a specific time, probably in my fourth year of medical school. Initially, I thought I wanted to do surgery. I actually contemplated doing general surgery. I contemplated doing cardiothoracic surgery. And then eventually, I happened to rotate with an interventional radiologist who let me do a lot and let me actually do many, many procedures, um, simple procedures uh, by myself. And, and that's kind of what inspired me to want to do IR. And I think that's, that's been the case for a lot of people and medical students that I talk to. It really depends on your experience. And I think if, if uh, as, as attending physicians at academic institutions, truly letting medical students do parts of the case actually inspires them and actually makes them more interested in the specialty. And I think uh, the things that have been done about educating medical students, as well as giving them a lot of hands-on experience, I think really motivates people to want to get into the field. Um, So that's what really inspired me to go into it. Definitely. And what about you, Dr. Chick? Uh, So I think my path is uh, probably quite different from others. Um, I originally uh, decided I wanted to do neurology way back in the day. Uh, I had a head injury like 20 years ago. And I uh, thought for a while I wanted to be a neurologist as a result. But then I uh, realized you really couldn't do that much as a neurologist. So I thought neuroradiology originally would be more interesting. Uh, so I went into radiology. And uh, once I started doing radiology, I just uh, couldn't sit in the dark room. I couldn't read studies all day. So I looked sort of for any way to get out of radiology, actually. So I almost uh, went back to do internal medicine. Uh, I, I almost went to do anything else. And it kind of was right as I was about to switch specialties that I found interventional radiology and realized that there was so much more to radiology than standard diagnostics. Um, and that interventional radiology was just great because you got to do a little bit of everything. You got to do procedures on all part of the body. You got to be experts at imaging as well. And uh, that has kind of maintained our uh, been true from here on out. Uh, It's a fascinating field. You do get to do everything. Every practice is a little bit different. As I found out now, I mean, I did certain things when I was in fellowship, very different things when I was at Michigan, and now very different things here in DC. So uh, it's a wide specialty that uh, reaches all areas, and it's great. Awesome. Yeah, it's interesting to learn about how uh, everybody has a different path into IR. You know, I've, I've yet to hear one path that's the exact same as the, another. Going along the lines of where that path leads, uh, Dr. Srinivasa and Dr. Chick, could you tell us more about how your current practice of IR is, is structured? So uh, here at University of Michigan, uh, we have uh, kind of a split uh, of three separate areas of the institution that we cover. We cover our cardiovascular center, university hospital, and a children's hospital as well. Um, we all do kind of a variety of interventions. People have their own kind of interests that they like more procedures uh, or more specific types of procedures. Um, so some of my interests are in biliary disease, um, lymphatics, pediatrics, venous disease to some extent, uh, and then um, kind of portal interventions as well. Um, so pretty broad spectrum as far as what 
we do as a whole, but certain people will do more of certain types of interventions. Um, so it's a pretty diverse practice when we do a ton of different procedures and a ton of complex interventions on patients uh, on a daily basis. So I think mine, uh, up until recently, I was also with Ravi at University of Michigan, where I did many of the same things. Uh, my personal interests were lymphatics and venous disease as well. I uh, just recently started ANOVA in D.C. Uh, and Virginia, and uh, our practice here is a little bit different. Uh, we do a, a, lot, a little of everything. Um, we cover three hospitals down here, and we uh, basically do all interventions that we're asked for. Uh, we do a lot more uh, peripheral arterial disease than I did in Michigan, and uh, a lot more cerebrovascular and stroke, and uh, just a little bit of everything down here. Wow. Yeah, similar to what Ben was saying, it seems like the practice of IR is also uh, very different. It's a little bit different for each practitioner. Before we dive into our topic, I want to remind our listeners that uh, we recently published a mini episode on percutaneous transhepatic cholecystoscopy. So for those of you that need a refresher, feel free to go ahead and listen to that to get an idea of more of the basics. But uh, Dr. Srinivasa and Dr. Chick have, sorry, Dr. Srinivasa and Dr. Chick have recently published a very informative video-based article in JVIR about a very exciting set of techniques in IR, um, namely cholecystoscopy and cholecystolithotripsy. We'll make sure to share the citation at the end of this episode. Um, so could you briefly describe what the role of the interventional radiologist classically has been in biliary disease, uh, Dr. Srinivasa? Yeah, so classically, uh, our role is in placing drainage catheters to either decompress the gallbladder in the setting of a patient with cholecystitis who's not a good surgical candidate um, who can't undergo a cholecystectomy. So as a temporizing procedure, we oftentimes will be asked to place a cholecystostomy tube in a patient who has an active infection and uh, cannot be cannot undergo surgery or has other comorbidities that would preclude them or prevent them from uh, having surgery safely. And usually it's as a bridge to actually getting ultimately a cholecystectomy and having their gallbladder removed after a prolonged period of time where they have catheter drainage and the acute infection resolves. Um, for biliary disease, traditionally, the role uh, of IR is only in the setting when ERCP either fails or uh, ERCP is not easily performed, such as in patients who have uh, altered gastric anatomy or altered biliary anastomoses where it's such as a Ruin Y gastric bypass, Bill Roth anastomoses, or uh, patients who have like a hepaticojejunostomy where it's a little bit more challenging for uh, endoscopist or GI endoscopist to perform an ERCP easily. Um, so in those settings, we get sometimes asked in the setting of a biliary obstruction or in the setting of um, stone disease or in the setting of a stricture uh, to place a percutaneous biliary drain transhepatically uh, in order to uh, traverse an obstruction. Oftentimes, these patients have an acute infection at the time as well. They may present with cholangitis, hyperbilirubinemia, may be symptomatic with pruritus or have some other reason or have a malignancy that uh, requires them to have uh, catheter drainage of their biliary tree. So, we kind of have a couple of different roles. Those are the kind of the traditional roles that IRs play in, uh, in biliary disease as a whole. Um, there are some new things that have been, which we'll be talking about today. Yeah, thank you. That's a perfect summary of, of some of the procedures I've heard more about, and we're very excited to learn more about the new techniques. So moving on to those new techniques, I, I remember it was, uh, a year ago, last February, uh, I had the chance to spend a week with you guys at University of Michigan, and I remember seeing um, a, a procedure in which uh, cholecystoscopy and cholelithotripsy was performed. And I remember I was there with, uh, I think, both of you and uh, Jordan Castle, Dr. Jordan Castle. And uh, he, I remember you guys explaining what you're going to do, and I, I almost couldn't believe it that you could just have a scope and then use, I think at the time you guys were using high-frequency ultrasound to break up these stones in the gallbladder. And uh, it is one of the mo more fascinating things I've seen while in medical school. So before we get into the, the details of that, can you uh, both tell us, uh, starting with you, Dr. Chick, how, how did you guys get started doing this technique? Well, I, I, I think uh, interventional endoscopy, uh, in some respect, Ravi and I were both a little uh, privileged to have some experience 
exposure to this in fellowship. Uh, we both trained at the University of Pennsylvania, uh, which was one or is one of the institutions, one of the few institutions that's doing uh, interventional endoscopy on a whole. There are a couple others, Indiana, Johns Hopkins. Uh, we have some colleagues is there as well. But uh, Scott Trotola sort of taught us some of the techniques which pertain more to biliary endoscopy, uh, basically removing stones uh, from the bile ducts or common bile ducts. Uh, so that was, I think, our initial exposure. Uh, however, that was only a few cases, at least for me. It wasn't until I got to Mi- University of Michigan uh, that basically Ravi trained me on most of these things. Uh, he was doing uh, the vast majority of the, nearly all the cases at Michigan uh, and he taught me the initial techniques for biliary endoscopy, uh, cholecystoscopy, and then we sort of expanded it uh, to other areas, uh, gastrointestinal endoscopy, uh, genitourinary endoscopy, and a couple of other uh, unique things that we'll talk about later. Awesome. Yeah. And uh, so we're, we're hoping to learn, especially about those two techniques that you guys started with, or especially the biliary and the, and the cholecystoscopy, but... Um, and then hopefully, yeah, like you said, we'll, we'll jump into those others as well. So um, for the students who may not have seen these techniques themselves or really maybe haven't seen the JVIR uh, art, video article yet, could you uh, describe, uh, Dr. Srinivasa, what the word cholecystoscopy means and what this procedure may look like? Right. So uh, cholecystoscopy essentially means doing endoscopy of the gallbladder. So actually placing a camera into the gallbladder lumen percutaneously. So we're not talking about putting a scope through the mouth, the traditional way you think about an endoscopy procedure being performed, but we're actually putting the endoscopy or the endoscope directly through a percutaneous tract that has been made into the gallbladder. Um, So... uh, Traditionally, uh, for cholecystoscopy, many people have used flexible endoscopes, and that's kind of what we were trained on. Dr. Chick and myself um, had kind of learned and been exposed to using flexible endoscopes. We kind of modified that a little bit and and started to use rigid endoscopes, the same endoscopes that uh, urologists use to perform nephrolithotripsy in the kidneys. Um, we kind of adopted that type of scope to use in the gallbladder. And we found even though it's a little bit larger in size that it's relatively safe and it actually makes the procedure a lot more efficient by using a rigid scope. And it allows you to deliver a number of different devices that allow um, fragmentation of stones to be made significantly faster and easier uh, to perform. Um, and our tutorial kind of goes through the video tutorial in JBR kind of goes through the setup and the, um, Uh, techniques for using actually a rigid endoscope as opposed to a flexible endoscope, though both could be used easily. Um, With the flexible endoscope, you have to use other tools such as lasers and baskets to kind of retrieve stones. And sometimes the procedures can be tedious when they have lots of gallstones, but essentially cholecystoscopy means putting a scope in the gallbladder and removing stones from the gallbladder. And just as a follow-up to that question, um, speaking of removing stones from the gallbladder, or speaking of breaking up stones in the gallbladder. Could you please describe first some of the medical student listeners what the word cholecystolithotripsy means and just a very quick picture of what it looks like? Yeah, so that's essentially fragmenting the stones using any of a number of different devices, including the ultrasonic lithotripter, which you mentioned, Ben, um, and then also laser lithotripsy devices. The, traditionally, historically, people used electrohydraulic lithotripsy devices as well. Um, though we've found that those devices uh, don't work as well and they take a lot longer to fragment stones. Um, And then the other thing, once you've fragmented the stones, you can then remove them with a basket, with a variety of different baskets. But pretty much your lithotripsy devices are are the ultrasonic lithotripter, the electrohydraulic lithotripter, and the laser lithotripsy devices. Those are your big three um, that we talk about when we're talking about fragmenting stones. Interesting. From what I understood from seeing this procedure and from your video, it seems that cholecystolithotripsy may be an excellent long-term treatment option for patients with cholecystitis who are not good candidates for cholecystectomy. Uh, and, and in you, both of your experience, what, what are some of the most common reasons that you know, a patient with cholecystitis ends up being referred to you for um, this and, and those that are not good surgical candidates, Dr. Chick? Uh, so most of these patients are uh, patients that are 
have lifelong catheter drainage. Essentially, they have acute, col- acute calculus cholecystitis, meaning that there are actual stones in the gallbladder that are causing the gallbladder to be inflamed. And uh, essentially, they're more or less deemed uh, not great sort of surgical candidates. That typically is because of a number of reasons. Uh, a lot of these are based on comorbidities that the patients have and uh, their inability to perceive either or to uh, tolerate either the anesthesia associated with surgery or the surgery itself. Uh, typically things that uh, we see are patients that have cardiac or pulmonary problems, uh, patients that have had multiple abdominal surgeries where uh, it may preclude opening the abdomen again, uh, patients who may have bacteremia or sepsis, basically things that make them, uh, these patients poor or perceived poor surgical candidates in the first place. As a result, uh, these techniques are in a sense, more minimally invasive, even though many of them require anesthesia as well. Uh, And it's sort of an alternative to opening the belly directly. So if we have a patient who is a poor surgical candidate, and we think that they might need a cholecystoscopy and cholecystolithotripsy, my understanding is that the first step is a placement of a cholecystostomy tube based on viewing your video. Um, So as you mentioned before, the Placement of a cholecystostomy tube is a common procedure for interventional radiologists. Um, so I guess my question is, would your approach and technique for placing a cholecystostomy tube be any different if you knew the ultimate goal was for that patient to undergo cholecystostomy and cholecystolithotripsy? Or would you do it very similarly to how you would place a cholecystostomy tube um, simply for long-term drainage? So I guess it just depends on how you, uh, an interventional radiologist themselves, their personal preference and how they place a, a cholecystostomy tube is. Um, so some people prefer to place them transhepatically. I think most people do use a short transhepatic window when they place a cholecystostomy tube. There are a number of interventionalists who prefer to place them transperitoneally and directly into the gallbladder. Sometimes you don't have a whole lot of options and you have to place it transperitoneally and you don't have the option of actually going through a short transhepatic window depending on on the patient's anatomy. Um, But for the most part, our preference would be just basically not to enter the antrum or to enter the neck of the gallbladder because it makes it a lot more challenging to remove stones when you're having to flex back towards the fundus or having to look back on yourself in order to visualize the entirety of the gallbladder. So our preference is that it's closer to the fundus or the body even, um, because most of the time you can kind of manipulate our the rigid endoscope or especially even a, a flexible endoscope towards, if you're in the body of the, uh, the gallbladder, you can usually manipulate it back towards the fundus and, and be able to evaluate the whole gallbladder. Um, traditionally, people who do cholecystoscopy would say that it's, it, your preference is to be near the fundus so that you can see the entirety of the gallbladder. But uh, in general, body or fundus are preferred. And if it's antral or neck access, that's not a good option for cholecystoscopy. Interesting. Um, and you mentioned the two approaches, the uh, transhepatic approach and the transperitoneal approach. Could you tell us a little bit more about um, why the transhepatic approach seems to be more popular and what the advantages and disadvantages? Uh, the main advantage is that when, uh, because we usually allow for these tracks to mature over time, We have started to do some of these procedures in a single session in appropriately selected patients, but generally speaking, most of these patients are presenting with an acute infection and they're presenting with cholecystitis. So we usually do a course of catheter drainage, allow their acute infection to resolve, and then bring them back for subsequent cholecystoscopy. The the nice thing about doing a transhepatic approach is that it allows a a, a well-formed tract to form through the liver. And should the tube get dislodged, it's a little bit easier to get back in through a tract that's matured through the liver as opposed to one that's matured from the abdominal wall through the peritoneum and into the gallbladder. I see. And how long do you guys wait uh, generally for that tract to mature? If it's not someone you do that single session, as you said, that can be very, uh, in, in certain patients that works, but in most people that mature, Dr. Chick? So I, I think the sort of classic teaching has been anytime you enter any sort of organ, be it the liver, be it the stomach or the kidney, you usually wait four to six weeks and that allows sort of a fibrous or a, a tract to form from the organ uh, that you've entered all the way to the skin. And that just makes it so that 
if you lose access or you need to change the tubes or it just helps facilitate uh, having that uh, direct track there. So I would say ideally uh, four to six weeks. But as uh, Robbie said, we've been finding that in a lot of cases, these can be done in just a single session without having a track at all. Uh, the scope can access to the gallbladder or other organ can just be accessed immediately. The scope can be placed and then ultimately at the end, drainage catheters can be left. Wow. Um, and Dr. Trick, could you tell us more about which patients you would feel most comfortable doing um, all of this in a single session as opposed to waiting for the track to mature? Well, a lot of these, um, I have to say, a lot of our patients that we saw initially uh, or that we started this on initially are patients who have had lifelong uh, cholecystostomy tubes. So these are patients that had calculus cholecystitis with actual gallstones, and uh, they were sort of relegated to this, uh, what we call, Robbie and I call, tube for life, where they had a cholecystostomy tube. They were on this conveyor belt where it was being changed over and over again, and they were told, hey, there are just no other options. They're not a good surgical candidate. The tube's never going to come out because if it comes out, they're going to get acute cholecystitis again. So initially, we had a large cohort of those uh, type of patients who had no other options. So these were the patients that we initially uh, tried to help, uh, and they had documented tubes in place. Um, There have been a few other occasions where uh, patients uh, came to us sort of unexpectedly, or they were there for other procedures, and we, uh, or we placed a primary cholecystostomy tube, and we thought, hey, uh, rather than have the patient come back several times, or uh, rather than schedule additional appointments, uh, why don't we just try to do this all at once? And if the patient doesn't have any uh, uh, coagulopathy or any uh, severe comorbidity or is relatively healthy, uh, we've tried these single-session procedures, and they've uh, done very well. Wow. It sounds uh, like a common theme in IR that we work out or that it seems that it's a common theme in interventional radiology to try and come up with solutions for challenging situations like the patients who chronically have the cholecystostomy tube. And then eventually we can move on to apply those same techniques to um, people that maybe have other options, but for which this might be another good option. So now that we've sort of talked about um, the cholecystoscopy, what are some common mistakes as the cholecystoscopy is placed, what, what are some common mistakes that our listeners should try and avoid? So in terms of uh, things that you don't want to do is you don't want to lose access into the gallbladder uh, during the procedure. So oftentimes we will place a safety wire into the gallbladder initially. We, we pretty much always place a safety wire. So you have two wire access into the gallbladder to prevent yourself from it. Should you, should your because essentially when you're doing the endoscopy, you have a safety wire through your scope channel as well, but you want to have one externalized wire as well. Should your cannula back out or should it uh, get displaced while you're manipulating the scope or, you know, torquing the scope through the, uh, through the, through the sheath, um, you want to be able to get back in uh, without having to make a new hole into the gallbladder. So that's one of the big things is to make sure you use a safety wire um, the other things uh, that we like to do at, at Michigan that not a lot of places do are when you're using large, larger scopes, such as the rigid endoscope, um, there's always the potential when you're infusing fluid into the gallbladder that, that patients can get electrolyte imbalance or get um, hypothermic from the amount of fluid that you're infusing. So we often will actually warm the fluids through a warming uh, machine. It's called the Ranger um, that allows you the fluids to actually be warmed. Um, the other thing is that we oftentimes will place at least an orogastric tube. Should there be any, uh, this is more happens with when you're doing um, percutaneous uh, biliary endoscopy, so cholidocoscopy, um, where fluid may reflux into the uh, stomach and then potentially cause the patient to aspirate. So oftentimes we'll put an OG tube in uh, to suction. Um, so those are some of the main things that that might be mistakes that you might encounter or things that you might might go wrong um so you don't want to you definitely don't want to make the patient hypothermic you definitely don't want to um you know make the patient aspirate from the fluids that you're infusing um and you don't want to lose access into the gallbladder so always have that safety wire you mentioned that uh, the saline flushes that you use and making sure not to make the patient hypothermic um 
have you noticed that a large volume of saline stays within the patient's body after a typical procedure? So with the scopes we use and the, uh, and the, uh, the sheets that we put them through, we usually tend to upsize them by roughly two to four French larger than the size of the scope. So a lot of the fluid actually ends up coming out externally from the patient and actually ends up going into the saline bag. And we use these watertight cranial drapes on the patient. We, we kind of repurpose craniotomy drapes to, 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 for these procedures because it allows you to put a very uh, watertight kind of seal around your uh, access point and around your access porthole um, so that the patient doesn't get fluid on their skin. Because the other concern is they're not necessarily that the fluid's getting infused into them and making them hypothermic, but the fluid's actually getting on their body. Um, so the other thing we also do is also put them on a bear or have them on a bear hugger as well to keep their body temperature at a, at a normal, uh, normal temperature. Interesting. It's not something I often think about, but I, it's very important. You don't want your patient to be hypothermic while you're trying to solve their other problem. Absolutely. Um, and so it sounds in that case that uh, most of the volume does seem to come out um, and not stay within the patient's body. Yeah, the vast majority does come outside. Would you have any particular concerns for a patient who can't tolerate extra volume, like somebody with CHF, or it doesn't seem to be a a real issue? We haven't had any major issues with that, so that hasn't really been a a definite concern. But we do let the anesthesiologists know that there's the potential for electrolyte imbalance, and if there's any rhythm changes on their EKG or anything, to be weary of of those things and to consider checking them. A basic metabolic panel as necessary. But to be honest, we've never had a patient actually have that issue. It's just kind of a theoretical thing. Hmm. So, so for the uh, cholecystolithotripsy, I, I know you guys have um, a number of techniques at your disposal, the high frequency ultrasound, uh, uh, the holmium laser and circle grasper. Dr. Chick, could you describe how these different tools work and how uh, you would decide to use one over another? Sure, of course. Uh, so at the, in the most basic form, uh, we have a variety of nitinol baskets, um, which, uh, essentially can grab and remove the stones if they're small, if they're intact enough and they're small enough. So there's, uh, just a, a whole host of, uh, of, uh, types of baskets, a zero tip basket, and uh, that can remove these stones. In addition, it's sort of a uh, similar thing as the end circle graspers, which are more or less a basket attached to a handle, uh, and they can remove stones as well. But if the stones are too large uh, to actually come out of the uh, plastic cannula from the uh, rigid endoscope, there are a whole bunch of different devices that can break them up. We have thrombectomy devices, such as the Traratola device, which is essentially a rotating uh, egg beater, basically, that can uh, attempt to break up the stones. Uh, And then if that's not successful, there's a bunch of different lithotriptors that can be used. We have the electrohydraulic lithotriptor, or the EHL, and the ultrasonic lithotriptor, or the UHL. The electrohydraulic lithotriptor uses essentially like a shock pulse to break up the stones, and the ultrasonic lithotriptor uses more or less an ultrasound frequency to break up the stones. Um, and we also have a wide variety of lasers. Uh, the Holmium laser uh, is a good one to break up the stones as well. So I'd say in general, the more or less the go-to uh, or sort of the algorithm that I think both Robbie and I have found relatively successful is either using the uh, shock pulse uh, lithotriptor device that we have to break up the stones or use the Holmium laser initially to break up the stones. Both of them work particularly well and uh, sort of fragment and almost vaporize some of the stones. And then, and then after that, use a combination of baskets such as or the graspers, such as the end circle, to sort of remove the various pieces. Awesome. Dr. Chick, you know, you mentioned the, the Holmium laser is one that is often used, and same with the uh, ultrasound or the lithotripsers. Are, are there specific uh, acute complications that can occur because of the use of those devices in the gallbladder or in other places? Well, I think, uh, I mean, certainly yes. Uh, obviously, there's uh, concern for gallbladder perforation or injury uh, to the wall of the gallbladder or any of the other structures uh, nearby. 
But uh, if you're cognizant of that and careful, I mean, this is all done under direct visualization. Uh, so the lithotripter uh, or the homium laser are not activated uh, until they're in contact with the stones. Uh, then it's really no problem at all. So it's more, I think, theoretic. You just need to be aware of it and uh, only activate these devices when they're, the stones are in front of them or they're actually in contact with the stone. Yeah, I know. I noticed that when uh, I, I saw the one procedure that, that I think you were having your fellow Dr. Castle do. Uh, he waited all the way until he was touching it to use the ultrasound, and then it kind of just explodes the, the uh, stone. It's pretty cool. Exactly. So from you guys' video, I learned that the, uh, the patient after a lithotripsy will leave the IR suite with uh, transcystic and cholecystostomy drains in place after, uh, after the cholelithotripsy, cholecystolithotripsy. Dr. Srinivasa, can you help our listeners picture what these drains connect to and what type of drain you choose for, for each of those? Sure. So, so not every person who does endoscopy uh, actually places a transcystic drain. It's been our practice at the University of Michigan to try to cannulate the cystic duct if we can, to try to traverse it. And mostly the reason is to try to sweep the cystic duct of any particulate debris that may be there. Uh, it's a little bit challenging to cannulate the cystic duct uh, from the gallbladder, given the, the valves and the fact that the, the, um, the spiral valves make the duct relatively tortuous as well. So oftentimes we have to use a microcatheter to actually traverse the cystic duct, get down into the common bile duct, and eventually get down to the bowel. Um, and then ultimately upsize to an O3-5 system and then place a 10 French biliary drain is what we usually use for the transcystic drain. And then we leave a 14 French uh, um, drain in the gallbladder, both through the same hole, through the same access site. And the reason we do that also is because uh, when we do rigid endoscopy, we, we usually place a 24 French Teflon sheath into the gallbladder. And so the 10 plus the 14 essentially covers your hole um, by putting both drains, one transistic drain, 10 French, and one 14 French uh, gallbladder drain. Both of those drains can connect to uh, a bag uh, for drainage, and usually we cap the transistic drain um, after the procedure uh, and after the patient has, has gotten their second dose of antibiotics and then also gotten, you know, they'll be sent home with a course of Augmentin. Um, 875 BID for about seven to 10 days post-procedure. Yeah. And generally these patients, uh, I, I know we mentioned the ones you're doing these procedures on are obviously uh, ones that have lots of comorbidities and not surgical candidates. Uh, do you often have patients go home the same day or do they end up having hospital stays uh, or does it just depend on the, on the patient? It really depends on the patient. Uh, for the most part, we've been admitting uh, patients uh, postoperatively or postprocedurally uh, overnight uh, just to make sure they don't get septic or have any issues um, and also to give them one more dose of IV antibiotics the following morning. Um, you can, in theory, send these patients home uh, same day after the procedure depending uh, how smoothly the procedure goes. But I think it's overall probably a better practice to just keep them, to just make sure nothing happens before you send them home. So I, I guess a question that I know the medical students that listen to our podcast would want to know, if you had a med student rotating with you, either of you, um, what are some things that the medical student could do post-op to, to help um, check on and take care of the patient, Dr. Chick? Uh, so I think in general, just uh, the important things to kind of look for afterwards are, I mean, you've obviously manipulated the gallbladder extensively. Uh, so we look for any sort of uh, obstruction of any of these tubes or any uh, indication that these patients are becoming sick or septic mainly. Uh, so initially after watching them, uh, just make sure that the tubes are draining properly, um, that both the transistic and the cholecystostomy drains are draining and that the patient has no fever, chills, rigors, or anything like that, then uh, just providing some sort of uh, instruction to these patients as well uh, so that when they go home, they know to look for those sort, sort of worrisome signs and that if uh, they develop any of those things, uh, they come in. From your video on JVIR, I learned that um, active cholecystitis is an absolute contraindication to cholecystoscopy. Um, is this because of the risk of rupture? So I think that's uh, sort of the thing that we're afraid of in general. I mean, 
uh, rupture or perforation of the gallbladder is certainly one concern. Uh, these patients, I mean, that have acute cholecystitis, uh, in a sense, are also septic. Uh, so you don't really want to be mucking around or manipulating uh, anything in the biliary tree, the gallbladder included at that point, uh, for the fear of translocating bacteria making them more septic, making them bacteremic, and so forth. So besides, uh, you know, those complications you want those patients looking for, with the drains themselves, when they go home, are there certain things you tell them to watch for specifically with the drains? Yeah, just any change in output. If the color of it changes to more purulent uh, or they start to have fevers, night sweats, any other constitutional symptoms that would suggest an acute infection, we tell them to... Uh, give us a call and then would bring them they had any of those symptoms back to emergency room and evaluate them further. Um, other than that, um, typically they cap the transit transistic drain with the cholecystoscopy uh, procedures that we place that transistic biliary drain. So they obviously wouldn't be having any output from that drain and it should be draining internally. However, if they have acute pain or have, um, um, you know, any, any uh, sharp pain, um, that might indicate that there's an issue um, as well. So if they have severe pain, we tell them to call as well. So really severe pain or any change in drainage are the main two things to look out for. I see. And after the acute period, um, I was curious, what's the longest that you've followed a patient who's undergone this procedure, the cholecystolithotripsy, and um, how are they doing? So uh, Jeff and I uh, recently published a paper in uh, – AJR on uh, our outcomes for cholecystoscopy. At the time that uh, we had submitted that manuscript, we'd done about 13 cases of, uh, of gallbladder uh, endoscopy. And uh, the longest we had followed anyone um, post-procedurally was 1,095 days. So uh, quite a long time. Um, only one of the patients um, had uh, uh, recurrent acute cholecystitis, and it was that patient um, after uh, roughly a thousand days um, that they had uh, redeveloped cholecystitis. Typically, we've done we've done a number of uh, additional procedures since that manuscript was submitted, um, and you know most of the time we're following these patients uh, for about a month or two post cholecystoscopy after we've gotten their tube out, and usually they're doing tremendously better. And they, they're obviously happy that they don't have to have a tube anymore. Um, so they're very grateful for that. Um, but we haven't had any other patients really develop stones again or develop cholecystitis. So certainly that's a theoretical risk. Um, we actually haven't experienced it in the short time when, when Jeff and I were working at Michigan together. I'll say sort of the same thing that, uh, as Ravi said, uh, that's a great paper that sort of summarizes uh, all of the sort of approach, the indications, the approach, and the outcomes for uh, stone removal from the gallbladder. Uh, Ravi and I also published another paper looking at all the cholecystostomy outcomes uh, for 17 years at the University of Michigan. Uh, essentially, we looked at every patient that ever had a cholecystostomy or was considered for a cholecystostomy, and ultimately we had uh, 324 patients which we followed uh, for that whole 17-year period. And we have all of the outcomes there, uh, how often the tubes were changed, how often the tubes were removed, how the tubes were removed, and how the patients did. And that's uh, in cardiovascular and interventional radiology, uh, just published a few months ago. And that's a great article as well. Yeah, we'll be sure to cite all of those in the uh, podcast, the show notes. Definitely. What role do do both of you see then? Uh, the, I, I, we can talk a little more about uh, the other kinds of endoscopy that IR can do, but specifically for hepatobiliary disease management, what, what role do you both see uh, these techniques playing in the future of a hepatobiliary disease management? If we were talking specifically with regards to the gallbladder, theoretically, we talked about different things we could do uh, in the gallbladder as well with... Uh, gallbladder polyps, such as removing gallbladder polyps the way endoscopists remove, gallbl- uh, remove uh, colonic polyps and other polyps with the GI tract. Um, we have ways of potentially uh, cauterizing them through an endoscope directly uh, and being able to treat 
potentially pre-malignant gallbladder polyps, or even treating gallbladder tumors and debulking them may theoretically be feasible in the future using some advanced devices to try to, uh, to treat, uh, uh, treat end- endoluminal masses within the gallbladder. Um, certainly other techniques such as cryoablation could also be considered, but um, there's, we've, we've actually been successful in, in cholidocoscopy when we've gone through the biliary tree in actually debulking and treating tumors within the bile ducts um, using um, electrocautery type systems to try to treat them. Um, we've also used radiofrequency ablation probes to try to treat uh, 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 tumors also intraluminally within the, within the biliary tree. Um, so I think there's a lot of potential for endoscopy and kind of the sky's the limit pretty much. Um, you can do a lot more uh, and it really expands the realm of, uh, of interventional radiology and the uh, capabilities by adding endoscopes to, to, your, to your tool chest of, uh, of devices available. Yeah, it seems like uh, every time we do an, an interview on something, we learn of other things we can do as future uh, topics for interviews, more advanced things. So I think you gave us a few ideas there. Dr. Chick, Dr. Srinivasa just mentioned the IR, the, the use of endoscopy in other ways in, um, it, it, by interventional radiologists. And, and I know both of you have alluded to that already in the, in the interview. Can you both, or, or Dr. Chick, can you sort of touch on the how you took those techniques and have applied them to other areas of the body? Of course. Uh, so I think part of uh, what has been so great is that, at least my personal experience, is that uh, Ravi and I have worked incredibly well together uh, coming up with sort of out-of-the-box or more innovative things. So I think uh, there are certainly individuals uh, throughout the country who are performing biliary endoscopy, and there are some individuals who are performing cholecystoscopy, although to be frank, there are not many people doing either. But there are not a lot of other people who are necessarily uh, using it for other areas. So uh, Robbie and I have done a few cases uh, in other areas, uh, for instance, gastrointestinal endoscopy. Uh, So in these cases, uh, these are patients that have uh, some sort of access to the gastrointestinal tract, such as a gastrostomy tube uh, or a gastrojejunostomy. And uh, essentially, that's just a direct access to the uh, stomach or the uh, small bowel in general. So this, this affords an opportunity to place an endoscope and evaluate uh, that system as well. So Ravi and I have uh, found uh, duodenal perforations, uh, by looking at the duodenum from the stomach, uh, we published that case. Uh, we've uh, actually retrieved eroded embolization coils in the esophagus uh, from a gastrointestinal, from a gastrostomy access. Uh, Ravi published uh, a series on removing foreign bodies, including broken feeding tubes, broken enteric tubes, and uh, dislodged stents in the stomach uh, from a gastrointestinal access. So these are some sort of unique uh, upper gastrointestinal uh, endoscopy uses. We've uh, performed rectal endoscopy and rectal stenting uh, for patients with strictures and malignancies. Uh, We've also uh, performed genitourinary endoscopy as well, a little bit like the urologists. Uh, The urologists use this... uh, technique to remove uh, kidney stones. Uh, we've done that as well, but we've also removed um, eroded uh, embolization coils in the kidney in three separate cases. Uh, that's been published in both JVIR and endourology. So those articles are pretty interesting as well. We've used it to help place uh, nephrostomy tubes and nephroureteral stents in patients with difficult access. And um, we've also used this kind of for some innovative things. Ravi came up with a technique where uh, he lasers enterocutaneous fistulas, uh, patients who have uh, connections from the small bowel or bowel in general to the skin, and uh, they don't heal and they're leaking. Uh, Ravi came up with a technique to laser these clothes, and we've actually used endoscopy to watch the laser process itself and uh, show how the laser actually closes these fistulas. So there are a lot of different uses. It provides sort of a, the great part of this whole thing is that we use 
fluoroscopy and ultrasound for a lot of our uh, various uh, procedures, but this actually allows direct visualization of everything. And it's a very easy technique uh, for us to learn and interventional radiologists to learn as well. And uh, I think sort of the sky is the limit, as Robbie said. Uh, it just takes a little bit of uh, training and uh, adaptation by IR as a whole. And uh, sort of to do that, uh, Ravi's been trying to organize some symposiums as well across the country uh, just to get a lot of people involved in this. It's fascinating to hear about the different ways that this tool can be used. Just listening to you, I, my, my mind was spinning with these, with these ideas. Yeah. It, it seems like the way that you describe it, it, it like you said, it's sort of a, a tool to put in your toolbox for, for procedures or, or diseases that you already manage, you know, nephrostomy tubes and, and tubes in other places. And then from there, like you said, you're continuing more new ways. Uh, and it, 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 uh, my, my understanding is it seems to go along with the, the picture of the interventional radiologist as the complete clinician for whatever disease process you're you're trying to deal with. I, I think that's definitely true. Uh, it is definitely a uh, interventional radiologists are skilled in a variety of image, imaging modalities. And this is just one additional one uh, that does provide a lot of benefit uh, for uh, difficult situations that we often come across. So you mentioned, Dr. Chick, there's some hesitancy to accept endoscopy. Dr. Srinivasa, can you touch on that, that you see the hesitancy in the IR community, and, and how do you respond to that hesitancy? Yeah, so I think some of that stems from the fact that we know that IRs have been pers- performing endoscopy since the 1990s. Um, Dan Pikus from Wash U and a number of others, including Matt Johnson at Indiana, Scott Teratola, a lot of people have been performing endoscopy for 20-plus years Um, But for whatever reason, it hasn't caught traction in the sense that not a lot of IRs are actually performing it. And I think that's been one of our kind of goals. Uh, Jeff and I have been trying to tell everyone, you know, this is really cool stuff. And this is something that's a really helpful tool um, to add to the uh, armamentarium of things that we have as interventional radiologists. And we need to, you know, open our minds and and, uh, look at, uh, you know, these, a new tool that can potentially make things easier, reduce your radiation dose, uh, and, you know, make procedures that were otherwise impossible possible again. Um, so uh, I think uh, a lot of the, the resistance is, is more just people are unfamiliar with it and, and feel like it's a lot of upfront cost, but there's a lot of ways to actually mitigate those factors by using these disposable scopes or you know, talking to GI, talking to other uh, departments, the, the surgeons, uh, to borrow endoscopes and, and start using them. And I think once people realize how easy it is to actually operate an endoscope, um, being an interventional radiologist using catheters and wires all day, operating an endo- endoscope is literally the simplest thing ever. Um, we've had medical students, residents, fellows um, practice using endoscopes, using some training phantoms that Jeff and I created. Uh, and, uh, it's amazing how quickly uh, you pick up using an endoscope within, within about 15 minutes or so you're pretty adept at using it. And um, it's, it's really not hard at all. So I think the main thing is just educating people on it. And that's what the goal of uh, doing these workshops, doing these podcasts, doing uh, publishing papers, and then also potentially doing an, uh, you know, endoscopy symposium. So people can uh, uh, learn about it a little bit more and, and learn what endoscopy has to offer and how easy it is to actually implement into an IR practice. Um, uh, Dr. Srinivasa, since you are organizing some symposia to help make this biliary endoscopy and other forms of endoscopy more accessible at um, other institutions by other interventional radiologists, um, could you share with us some of the challenges that you think um, interventional radiologists have when first starting this technique at their own institutions? And Um, any ideas that seem to be um, and sort of your best thoughts about how to overcome these challenges? I think the biggest thing for uh, interventional radiologists to recognize and to know is that this is not a replacement when we're talking about biliary endoscopy specifically, this is not a replacement P. ERCP is an extraordinary tool. It doesn't require percutaneous access. uh, And uh, in, in many patients, ERCP is the best option and should be the first line option for treating 
uh, biliary stone disease. Um, it's the patients where there's altered anatomy or it's challenging or they fail ERCP, they have a duodenal diverticulum or uh, many instances where it's difficult to do uh, a retrograde and endoscopy uh, where we can play a role. And I think it's important that it be a collaborative effort with gastroenterologists and that you're not looking to take away their practice. Um, you're looking to help them and try to help patients who don't have a whole lot of other options or, you know, help them instead of having to do a double balloon enteroscopy, which is a lot more challenging or difficult or them having to do an endoscopic ultrasound with direct access into the biliary tree. You can just offer to do a percutaneous access and, and perform endoscopy uh, that way. And, and it, it can make things a lot easier for the patient um, as well in the long run. Um, so I think those are the, one of the big things is to, to make sure you're collaborative with other specialties. And if, if you make it seem like you just want to take away what they're doing, particularly on the urology front, we kind of alluded to this at our workshop at SIR this year. You don't want to just go in starting in, uh, doing uh, nephroscopy and taking out uh, kidney stones um, right from the get-go because you're going to get a lot of uh, pushback uh, if you try to do that. Um, it's in select instances, and a lot of times when we've, with the innovative techniques that Jeff uh, and I um, have been working on, um, it's just kind of a kind of a spur of the moment thing. We decide that why don't we try an endoscope in this case? Um, it might help us, you know, get through the case better or actually be able to successfully perform the case. And a lot of the times it has significantly helped in those instances. So I think the keys are to, to collaborate think a little bit outside of the box and try to use scopes whenever you can um, once you have them readily available at your practice. And, and going along those lines, um, where do you access your scopes from? How does it, is there anything special that um, an interventional radiologist who's thinking about endoscopy should know about the logistics of maintaining a scope and having it accessible for these cases? So at the University of Michigan, we're fortunate in that we actually uh, own the scopes uh, uh, the, the scopes that are being used for uh, urology in our department are actually owned by the Department of Radiology, and they actually borrow the, uh, the nephrolithotripsy in our, in our IR suite. So we're fortunate in that respect that we have access to a number of different scopes. Um, there's, a, there's a new scope that's available that's uh, a disposable scope made by Boston Scientific called the LithoView endoscope. Um, that's a single-use endoscope that costs roughly $1,500 single-use. Uh, the, the company actually provides a monitor for free use, uh, provided you roughly three cases a year. Um, and that's a really easy scope to set up, and it's a really good starter scope for people who are looking to start an endoscopy practice. Um, it's really good for uh, biliary cases particularly. Um, you can also use it in the gallbladder. Um, lasers fit through the endoscope channel. And allow you to you know perform laser laser lithotripsy relatively easily. And the nice thing is you don't need a whole uh, endoscopy tower and the whole setup for uh, performing endoscopy because you all you need is this monitor, uh, the endoscope, which comes packaged just like any other catheter would come packaged, and uh, you can literally just start scoping right away. Um, for other endoscopes like the rigid endoscopes and other uh, reusable endoscopes, um, other institutions might find it helpful to talk to their uh, ORs and talk to their GI folks as well. Uh, oftentimes they'll find that um, there's an abundance of scopes available um, that are basically unused and you can essentially borrow the scopes at will and just ask those departments to borrow a tower and borrow an uh, endoscope and you'll, you'll probably be met with some uh, um, favor actually they, they, they're, they're pretty receptive to that as well so I think that's probably the the easiest way to do it but uh, or one one other way to do it but getting those disposable scopes is really handy in that uh, it, you don't have to talk to any other department you just uh, order the disposable scopes and you'll have access to them uh, right away because otherwise buying the scopes is actually quite expensive to have to buy the reusable scopes and the tower um, it's it's a lot of upfront capital Wow, disposable um, endoscopes. What will they think of next? Yeah. So, Dr. Chick, how did you guys decide to publish using a video format? Uh, well, I think part of the idea was uh, I think some of the stuff that we were doing at University of Michigan was a little bit unique. And uh, the hope was to sort of disseminate some of this, I think, to other, to our colleagues and to other practices. 
So Robbie and I have written several articles, uh, some of which have gained traction, but also some of which have not. I think there's been a little bit of resistance or hesitation uh, from the IR community in general to uh, kind of embrace endoscopy completely. And it's also a little bit difficult to describe some of these techniques just in a paper alone. And uh, some of this stemmed from uh, when we were fellows again at Penn, uh, they've published several video articles in JBIR, and it's a great uh, format for to make a small video, 10 minutes or so, that sort of uh, encompasses everything and explains uh, basically how you do it. Uh, so we thought this was something unique uh, that we could show everyone and we could show uh, everyone pretty easily. Uh, so that was sort of the impetus for making the video format, and then it um, just kind of worked out. Uh, we've been trying to work on several other projects as well because like this, there are a lot of techniques in IR that are difficult to explain just uh, through an article and through writing. And I think this video format really lends itself well uh, to showing how we do these procedures. And uh, what what tips would you offer to other interventional radiologists who are trying to, to share a new innovative technique using a, a published video? Uh, so I, I think, uh, it, it certainly, the video serves as a tool that can be watched several times, uh, and it sort of outlines the technique, the equipment, and sort of the outcomes. So it's all, the nice thing is that it's a, just sort of a one-stop shop. Uh, you can watch it a few times, uh, get sort of the ideas, and then it's nice to be able to just contact uh, the individuals who made the article and just ask sort of additional questions with this. Ravi and I have been uh, fortunate that a lot of people have reached out to us and uh, just asked for additional tips on biliary endoscopy, cholecystoscopy, and uh, endoscopy in general. How do we start the practice? How do we get the equipment? How do we perform the procedures? So it just serves as sort of a nice basis for all of that. Finally, Dr. Srinivasa and Dr. Chick, if you were both on an elevator with an aspiring interventional radiologist um, who was going to see his or her first case of biliary endoscopy, what insight would you share before one of you had to step off of the elevator? So I, I think I would at least say uh, part of an interventional radiology that's a little bit scary is the unknown. Uh, so this is an area of IR that's not really like other areas. I mean, we do a ton of ultrasound, we do drainage procedures, we do our arterial procedures, we do venous procedures, we do all of these things that become second nature. So I think there's a little bit of trepidation initially uh, when doing this because it's a little bit out of our typical wheelhouse. But I think uh, people should just embrace it completely, uh, sort of try something new uh, and just uh, wholeheartedly uh, go after it because I think it offers a lot to our patients and it offers a lot to our field in general. Yeah, truly, this is a new frontier for IR. Um, you know, although endoscopy has been around, you know, the applications for it that we've been trying to promote and uh, trying to, uh, you know, explain, uh, tell other people about, um, you know, there's the potential is unlimited. Um, and I think these procedures and endoscopic procedures, many of our fellows and residents would tell you the same. These are some of the most fun uh, and rewarding procedures that you can do. Um, getting patients who have chronic indwelling tubes, uh, who've had tubes for many, many, many years, and they, they uh, uh, have been thought, have basically thought that they would have a tube for life, uh, now can be rendered tube-free by having a simple endoscopy procedure uh, to remove their stones or to treat a biliary stricture or to do any number of different things uh, in order to make the quality of their lives better. It's amazing. Well, just like everything else in IR, the innovation continues to move forward at an incredible pace. And we're excited. Maybe this next year on our next season of podcasts, uh, we can uh, do a follow-up on the, the new endoscopy techniques you guys are doing. Absolutely. We want to thank you both for taking the time to, to join us on the podcast today. And uh, again, for our listeners, we'll be sure to cite um, the video article and the other articles they mentioned in the show notes so you can uh, read more about IR endoscopy. Thanks a lot. I appreciate it. Uh, yes. Thank you both. Thank you for having us. That's it for this episode. 
We would like to again thank Dr. Chick and Dr. Srinivasa for discussing this topic with us today. They mentioned several very interesting articles, and if you're interested, you can find the citations for these articles in the show notes or on our website, which is thesoundofir.podiant.co. Please keep an eye out for our upcoming episodes this season, where we'll be discussing interventional oncology, pediatric IR, women in IR, and more. If you would like to be a part of a podcast episode, we'd love to hear from you. If you're interested in interviewing a practicing IR physician, being interviewed by a member of our team, or contributing in another way, please let us know. You can also follow us on Twitter. We're at the underscore sound underscore of underscore IR. Our email address is the sound of IR, all one word, at gmail.com. If you enjoyed this episode, please feel free to leave us a rating and review. See you next time. Also, one last thing. We would like to acknowledge and give our sincere thanks to Michelle Schneider, who you just heard speaking, for her important contributions to this episode. And she's an incoming IRD resident at the University of Michigan. And unfortunately, as happens to medical students, she got called away the night we were doing the interview with Dr. Srinivasan and Dr. Chick. But thank you, Michelle, and thank you to all the med students and everyone else who works with us on the podcast. See you next time. Thank you.